everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Are You Kidding Me? I'm Naomi Schaefer-Riley, a senior fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. And hello, Naomi. This is Ian Rowe, also a senior fellow at AEI. And today we are joined by Mike Petrilli. He is the president of the Thomas B. Fordham Institute, uh, and he's also a visiting fellow at Stanford's Hoover Institution. Thanks so much for joining us, Mike. Oh, it's a real pleasure, Naomi and Ian. I'm a huge fan of your writing, both of you, and so glad to be on the show. So, Mike, we wanted to start today. Um, you know, this is a topic that has been uh, rehashed any number of times. There's a lot of hand wringing about it, um, but people don't seem to know where to go. Um, everybody has acknowledged this sort of great deal of pandemic learning loss out there. Um, and I guess the question is, you know, should we sort of accept reality that kids are just kind of behind and, you know, we should go a little easier on them? Um, or should we, as we, as you say, uh, sort of adopt an attitude like we still have high expectations for kids um, and we're going to sort of plow through this and try to get them back to where they should be? Yeah, well, you know, Naomi, I, I wish everybody would acknowledge that we have this problem with learning loss. I mean, unfortunately, we don't even have that. I mean, of course, we've got some folks in the teachers unions and on the far left arguing about the term learning loss and I don't know, waving their hands about what happened. Um, but I haven't heard President Biden give a major address talking about this. You know, th this is a national crisis that we are facing. We have students uh, who are even further behind than they were before the pandemic. And of course, we weren't doing great before the pandemic either. Uh, and it's going to have serious consequences on their lives, you know, and and it is not something, yes, in, in our wonky circles, we talk about it. I am glad that it did come up at the second Republican debate a little bit. So that's promising. Maybe it'll get more airtime. But I, I worry, Naomi, that that we are really sleepwalking through this. One of the problems is that is that parents, you know, the, the news we get from schools is still very positive. You know, we get these report cards full of A's and B's. You know, what they don't tell us is that everybody's getting A's and B's just about, you know, they if we see the test scores that our kids are are getting that are showing the learning loss, the schools say, oh, don't worry about that. You know, don't, those tests don't mean anything or, you know, everybody lost ground. Your kids will be fine. And and yeah, a lot of our kids will be fine, but uh, it means that they won't have learned as much as they would have. A lot of kids who would have gone to college now won't go to college. Other kids who would have been ready for career and technical training won't be ready for that. Uh, Eric Hanushek, my colleague at Hoover, has has you know calculated this is going to mean lost trillions of dollars in the economy and wages. So, anyways, it's bad. And and the worst part is that in the past school year. Uh, the kids were learning less from the fall to the spring than they did in the school year before the pandemic. So it's not just that we haven't bounced back. Uh, it's that we're still digging a hole for ourselves. We're still going in the wrong direction. And that's where I think- no, When you say they learn point. less, you mean you mean that, that sort of taking the point at which they started in September yeah. and the point at which they ended in May, their yeah. progress was less than it had been in previous school years. Exactly. Exactly. They used to learn more from fall to spring in reading and math back in, say, 2018, 2019 than they did in 2022, 2023. And this is where we get to this conversation about accountability, high expectations, tough love. You know, why is it that we're still going backwards? Well, one hypothesis is that we have this enormous chronic absenteeism crisis. Kids aren't coming to school. We have a number of big cities where, I kid you not, over half the kids were chronically absent in the most recent data. That means they missed upwards okay. of three or four weeks of school. The kids aren't showing up. The babies aren't showing up to class. And guess what? They're not learning. 
And now to your point about, you know, parents are still hearing locally that everything's okay with their school. In New York State, you know, the, the results of the latest state assessment have just come out and they're dramatically high. Hmm. And voila, the state hmm. education department said, this is a new benchmark. Hmm. We can't compare the results for this hmm. year relative to before. So all the discussion of learning loss is now out the window. We have a brand new benchmark. Kids have done relatively extremely well on this assessment. But the point is, how does anyone know how our, how our kids are actually right. doing, even based on these assessments? Yeah, and, and yet ACT scores are at all-time lows or at least 20-year lows, right? Uh, you know, eventually kids and parents are going to figure out that, wait a minute, <laughs> you know, why'd my older brother do so well on the SAT or ACT and I'm doing so much worse? Or um, why are these opportunities closing to me? Uh, and, and look, the, 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 the absenteeism thing is really, I think, interesting and tricky, right? On the one hand, as a parent, I totally get it that, you know, here, here I was, I was in Montgomery County, Maryland, schools were closed for over a year. Uh, and so after that experience where the school system, you know, just said, hey, you're, you're not allowed to send your kids to school, we're going to put the needs of, of the adults in the system first. You know, I understand parents saying, well, then your authority is gone. So when you tell me my kid has to be at school, eh, I don't believe you. You know, I, I, I and I don't trust that authority. If I feel like going on a vacation with them in the middle of the school year, instead, Fine. There's a school district in North Carolina where they they had this problem where a lot of kids were missing Mondays and they tried to figure out what was going on. They dug into it. Turned out a lot of the parents were working over the weekend. They were working class parents doing service sector jobs. They kept their kids home on Mondays so they could spend time with them. Now, that's sweet in a certain way, right? It's understandable, again, after what we've all been through, but those kids need to be in school because uh, their future depends on it. And so we need to get back in this country to a conversation about, about some of these basic norms. Kids go to school. We need to give uh, grades that are accurate. Not everybody should get an A or a B. You know, parents who don't send their kids to school should get a phone call and maybe even a knock on the door. I mean, we got to get back to that sort of, uh, that sort of talk again. So do you think that there is like an, an appetite among um, the public, among policymakers, among education leaders to have that conversation? Um, or are you shouting into the wilderness now? <laughs> well, look, I first of all, I think when it comes to having, let's say, at least some higher expectations for kids, that has always been, I, I think, an easier sell than actually holding adults accountable, mm -hmm. right? Uh, we're more comfortable holding kids accountable, at least once upon a time we were. Now, in recent years, we've had a hard time with that because we get into these debates about equity, right, about uh, racial and socioeconomic disparities. Uh, you know, if you have high expectations, some kids aren't going to meet those expectations. And the achievement gap being what it is, uh, you know, it's more likely that black and Hispanic and low income kids aren't going to meet those standards. And so, you know, some people have said, oh, well, if you have a grading system, where, you know, black and Hispanic kids have lower GPAs than white and Asian kids, that must be racist, and therefore we must get rid of it or change it. I mean, that's crazy. So we have to push back on that nonsense. But I do think there's still a lot of uh, intuitive appeal of, you know, the old No Child Left Behind slogan of ending the soft bigotry of low expectations. I mean, things like that poll very well across the political spectrum, across all racial groups and, and ethnic groups, maybe with everybody except for white liberals, uh, you know, on the far left. So I do think there's there's some, some uh, appetite for that, at least in theory. Now, when it comes to reality and saying that, you know, 
we need to stop handing out diplomas. You know, we need to be willing to give kids an F. We need to be willing to have kids repeat third grade if they haven't learned to read. Got to give them extra help. But, you know, none of this is is easy. What It's easier, though, I think, Ian, tell me if I'm wrong, than trying to hold adults accountable, you know, by actually going up against the, the unions in the system and saying, hey, if teachers aren't getting the job done, they need to be held accountable. Schools that aren't getting the job done may need to close. I think those are much tougher political fights. Yeah, I mean, you look at Chicago, where you know the uh, proficiency rates for certain communities is in single digits, but the teacher um, performance and evaluation rates for like ninety-five to one hundred percent, you know, passing for approval. I mean, you just said something interesting. You said we have to reject some of this. Um, like ridiculous stuff, like, you know, the stuff coming out of, you know, in the name of equity where, you know, um, uh, higher level classes are being eliminated or standards are being lowered. How do you fight against these forces that um, their answer is not necessarily high, higher expectations for all, but sometimes it's actually lowering standards so that everyone can be equal, independent yeah. of the fact that all you've now achieved is universal mediocrity. Mm-hmm. That, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. I don't know, Ian. I mean, the, the only thing that gives me hope is I think that those positions are hugely unpopular, uh, including with mainstream Democrats, you know, including with uh, mainstream African-American and Hispanic voters. So, you know, when people understand that that's what's going on, they reject it. You know, they say, of, of course, that's ridiculous. Um, you know, of course, we need to have standards and high expectations. Uh, of course, we can't give everybody A's and B's that they didn't earn. So, uh, you know, I, I, but a lot of this goes on behind the scenes or quietly or, you know, uh, it doesn't get the attention that it deserves. It's starting to, it's starting to get more attention when it happens. Uh, you know, you mentioned the advanced courses, you know, we've done a lot of work at Fordham uh, working on this issue of advanced education, including how to make it so that it is much broader and more diverse. And it means starting in kindergarten, you know, making sure that kids of all backgrounds have an opportunity to do advanced level work if they're ready for it. Can't wait till they're applying to college and then worry about, you know, diversity on campus. Uh, but it means having those high expectations throughout. It doesn't mean getting rid of gifted and talented programs or getting rid of advanced courses because not everybody can do it. It means doing the hard work of getting more kids ready to succeed in those pathways. Yep. And school choice so that parents in trapped communities have more ability to, to pick schools that will put them on a pathway to be able to be prepared right. for advanced courses, Right. Absolutely. Yeah. You you mentioned uh, in your article in the New York Times the uh, recent move by Texas to take over the Houston public schools. That used to be more common. Um, mm -hmm. There are any number of districts across the country where the state sort of decided they were a failing district, uh, you know, however you define that. And the state was going to move in to try to to change things. I wonder, sort of, if you could reflect on how successful those efforts were, and whether you know we need to move back to that. I know you said that it was harder to hold the adults accountable, but you know, in these mm -hmm. cases where you know, like Baltimore or something, where you get just a complete system wide failure, uh, you know, what what choice do we have? Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, the, the conventional wisdom is that those state takeovers failed. And I think the real story is more complicated. You know, it was a mixed picture for sure. There were a lot of failures. You know, it's not surprising. It's not like our state education bureaucracies are always uh, right. you know, paradigms, paragons of excellence, right? And they're the ones handed, you know, that we hand these school districts to a lot of times. 
you know, this was at the same time that there was a big push for mayoral control in education. And again, that was a mixed bag, you know, when you had some mayors like Paul Vallis or Michael Bloomberg come in and, and willing to fight and kick butt. A lot of good things happen, you know, but then different mayors get elected, as we have seen most recently in Chicago, uh, and it goes south. So it's, it's you know, it's not the proverbial silver bullet. But, you know, if some of these urban systems, and they tend to be the urban systems that are most broken, if they're broken because of politics, because of governance, you know, because the school board is bought and paid for by the unions and, uh, you know, isn't willing to uh, to move towards the kinds of changes that the system needs, then, yeah, I don't think you have much choice than to try to do a governance overhaul. I mean, the other big thing you can do in, in which Texas is debating right now is give parents real choice, right? And let them exit the system. My own view is we should do both. You know, that mo most effective is to try to do uh, these top-down reforms as hard as they are, uh, while also giving parents that ability to exit and, and to find better choices. And look, I'm optimistic about Houston. I mean, they, they have picked a great superintendent, Mike Miles. He did an amazing job in Dallas, former military West Point guy, uh, fearless, you know, has you know no concern for what people think about him. And as, as Rod Page, who uh, Ian and I are colleagues with him on the Fordham board, you know, used to say, said, hey, if you want to be popular, don't be an urban superintendent, be successful. Yep. It's not just that kind of popularity. I mean, I, you know, at the highest levels too, but I wonder whether you also sort of feel for these teachers who are in this situation where everybody's encouraging them to kind of, you know, look, these kids have had a rough time, go easy on them. You know, mm -hmm. it's, it's just, you know, you, you don't want to send a kid home with a failing grade. You don't want to be harassing parents about the absenteeism. Mm -hmm. You know, you don't, you don't want to tell the kid that they're going to have to repeat third grade or something like that. Um, and this seems to be one of the policies that we, you know, sort of talk about a lot on this podcast, which is, you know, you think you're you're being nice and helpful, um, but in fact, you know, you're you're really harming the kids' future prospects. So, yeah. you know, how do you kind of buck up the the teachers and the education professionals to say, you know, really, it's it's time to buckle down here. Yeah, no, they they are frustrated, no doubt. I mean, there's tons of evidence about that. There was again, the New York Times amazingly ran another piece recently uh, by their parenting uh, columnist Jessica Gross, I think it is, um, who wrote about how teachers are frustrated because they they feel like they have no authority, and it's the absenteeism, it's this issue with grades, it's also the issue with discipline. You know, we've we've made it so hard for teachers to send a kid to the office for misbehaving. Uh, you know, Gavin Newsom just signed a law in California that said that uh, statewide, you're not allowed to suspend kids at the middle school or high school or elementary school uh, for, for example, cussing out their teacher. So, you know, drop your F-bomb on Mrs. Smith and hey, nothing happened, slap on the wrist. So look, I actually think this is an interesting issue, uh, both substantively and politically. This is one of these issues where conservatives who often maybe feel like, you know, our positions are at odds with educators, where we can really be on their side when it comes to discipline, when it comes to grading, uh, you know, saying, look, we should not be taking authority away from them. We need to actually build a culture of respect uh, for our educators. Right. Conservatives are not on the side of the adult of the, you know, inmates running the asylum. Uh, so. Right. No, that's right. <laughs> Absolutely. And look, I mean, this is where 
you know, maybe conservatives versus libertarians a little bit here, right? I mean, we do believe in adult authority, right? I mean, it, of course, there should be checks and balances. And at the end of the day, parents are the key players. But, you know, I think all of us want to send our kids to schools where the adults are respected, they have the authority. And if some kid is being a jerk and acting out, which they will, because human nature, uh, that the adults have the ability to do something about it. Hmm. I mean, Mike, you and I have been in this work long enough now. There was a period of time where conservatives... Liberals, Democrats, Republicans, you know, parked our disagreements, but on education reform, we could agree every kid should have an equal shot at a great school. And for a long period of time, the, the rise of charter schools, educational freedom, we benefited from that. Kids benefited from that. Where do you think that stands today? Because it really seems like we're a lot more fractured and the sort of bipartisan efforts, particularly around education reform, now seem long gone and very hard to resurrect. Yeah, no, it, it is does look like it's in the rear view. Of course, there are exceptions. We can find some governors left and right, uh, you know, who are still pushing forward on pretty broad education reforms, Governor DeWine in Ohio or Jared Polis in Colorado. But, you know, certainly uh, it feels like more the, the exception than the rule. And at the national level, you know, it's a complete disaster. I mean, look, I, I, as you may have heard, our politics are a little polarized right now. Uh, mm -hmm. And they have been now for what, at least a decade, if not more. And, uh, you know, this populist phase that we're in and this this phase of pushing to the extremes makes it very hard for education reform, which really was a centrist project in many ways, center left, center right. So I think to some degree, we have to wait for the politics to, to settle down. In the meantime, though, those of us that care about kids and education are doing the work uh, policy, but especially in the field, you know, I do think that we can try to build, rebuild some of those uh, those connections we had before and, and get ready for another big push on reform when the politics are right. And as you know, I, I was part of an effort with Democrats for Education Reform. We, this cheesy name, we called it Building Bridges, uh, with about 20 other leaders in education reform, left, right, and center, very much left, very much right uh, and center, to see where we, you know, first of all, just to rebuild relationships and then see if we still agreed on anything. And the good news is when you sit in a room with people face to face, not over Zoom, uh, maybe over dinner, maybe over drink, you know, you start to really talk about things. Guess what? It turns out that we still do agree on on many, many key issues and that some of the words that divide us. One of the members called them suitcase words. You know, you, you see the suitcase, but you don't really know what's in it or everybody imagines something different in it. I think the word like equity is one of those words, you know, we have good reason to be worried about what that may mean to some people. Uh, but at least the folks that we gathered in this project, I think we're pretty well in agreement that some of the crazy notions that get bundled under equity today is not what they have in mind. You know, they have in mind more old fashioned ideas about equality of opportunity and, hey, let's make sure we help the poor kids and kids of color achieve as much as they can. Uh, so uh, it makes me somewhat hopeful. But uh, and, and, you know, somehow we got to keep doing that kind of work. It's, you know, again, I know it's easy to make fun of and it's kumbaya and let's all. But uh, it, it's, I think, important if if some of these disagreements are uh, because we're talking past each other rather than we have fundamental disagreements about, you know, the nature of what what kids should know, what they should do and what education should look like. I mean, here, here's the trick, Naomi. I think, you know, within the, the field of policy wonks and within educators, yes. But, I, you know, in terms of the politicians that actually need to make action and, you know, pass bills, I think it's, of course, much more fractured. I mean, we're frozen at the federal level. 
which is probably okay uh, for now. And, you know, that's not where the action is at the state level. Look, you know, red states are doing red state things and blue states are doing blue state things, you know, for the most part. Uh, red state things are mostly about school choice, which, which is great. I mean, let's give parents more choices, though. You know, I do worry that some of the bills getting passed aren't going to do much in terms of improving outcomes and returning accountability and aren't going to do a whole lot for, you know, the vast majority of kids who are in neighborhood public schools. Mm -hmm. Right. What came out of the Building Bridges Initiative? Because I think it's important for people to know, A, that it existed, and that you came up with a set of recommendations that seem to have, you know, more widespread support. So tell tell our listeners, yeah. Well, we did. And, and, you know, it wasn't, we weren't even sure if we would come out with a statement or not, but we decided to give it a try and it was hard and we worked hard at it. We were able to come out with something we called it a generation at risk. You can find it on uh, buildingbridgesineducation.org. And, you know, the generation at risk is of course, referencing this generation of kids after COVID. And a big focus is saying, like I did earlier, we need a much greater sense of urgency about this generation. We got to stop just sleepwalking through this recovery. We got to, you know, get, do do much more, much faster uh, to get these kids what they need, you know, especially the oldest kids who are, you know, going to just probably just leave the system and not have the skills they need. And so what can we do about that? We also focus though on, you know, what the system of the future should look like a system that's much more resilient than what we saw during the pandemic. And there was a lot of support for a student centered system, one that you know, allows more customization and personalization, you know, less of the trudging, you know, the, the, the march through the curriculum, you know, one size fits all kind of stuff. There was a lot of interest in empowering parents in significant ways. Certainly this group was all in support of charter schools, at least. More debate about how far that should go, as there's always been debate about, you know, private school choice, education savings accounts. Uh, folks on the left weren't willing to go that far. Uh, and then this idea of, you know, how do we make sure there's a, a broad idea of what education is all about? Of course, it's the academics, but it's the other stuff, too, though that other stuff doesn't necessarily have to happen within schools. You know, whatever you want to call it, leadership skills, you know, social emotional skills. Uh, thankfully, there's a lot of uh, institutions in our society that get into that kind of stuff, not just schools, you know, Boy Scouts and Girl Scouts and churches and, uh, you know, after schools, soccer programs. You know, and so one thing we talked about is how do we give poor kids more opportunities, including outside of school, to get access to that kind of stuff uh, that rich kids today uh, take for granted. Just one last question I had for you was sort of thinking about, you know, kind of the red states are doing red states things and blue states are doing blue states things. Do you have any sense that there is sort of, um, you know, more, I don't know, sort of these states looking at each other and kind of wondering what's working or is everybody just kind of in their own kind of tunnel vision, um, just moving ahead with whatever their political party's agenda is? Yeah. I mean, look, I I think there's a few areas where there's some crossover. I think probably the most important one is around early literacy. You know, this, this movement for the science of reading, it's really encouraging. It is happening in red and blue states, uh, maybe more red than blue, but still some blue and some purple. Uh, you know, and I think it's in many places being driven by governors, you know, who are hearing from the public about, you know, how ridiculous it is that we're still not teaching kids to read appropriately. Uh, and some of the attention that has come from some podcasts and other things lately. Uh, and so a very aggressive push in in multiple states around that. And again, that feels kind of like, you know, 
a little bit old school education reform. In fact, 20 years ago, we had something called Reading First that was part of No Child Left Behind that was pretty similar to what's going on right now. So I think there are some examples. You know, I don't see yet an appetite to say, really dig in again on on top-down accountability. You know, let's talk about closing low-performing schools or let's try again on teacher merit pay or evaluations. I, I don't see that as much. Um, but, but uh, you know, some of these reforms around reading, for example, there's some agreement and and that's not nothing. Yeah, yeah, definitely. All right. Well, that's a All hopeful right, note. Yes, exactly. We don't have a lot of those on this podcast. We're really, we're, I'm we're, glad we're, I we're so glad to have you on, Mike. When, yes. when I'm the hopeful note, boy, I, yeah, I that says a lot. You're the yeah. cup half full. Well, thank you so much for joining us. This has been another episode of Are You Kidding Me? Uh, you can get episodes of this podcast on the AEI podcast channel or wherever you get your podcasts. So with that, I am Naomi Schaefer-Riley. And I'm Ian Rowe. Mike, thank you very much. My pleasure. 